From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna stand right down and write myself a letter And make believe it came from you Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Naps Chat. I'm Bob Levy, the Director of Legislative and Political Affairs for the National Association of Postal Supervisors. One of the most important functions performed by the United States Postal Service, and that was particularly well executed during the pandemic, was the acceptance, carriage, and delivery of prescription medication. Prior to the pandemic, over 14 million Americans received their medications by mail. Prescription by mail has proven to be life-protecting and health-enhancing for senior citizens, Americans residing in rural areas, for those whose retail pharmacies are inconvenient, and for our neighbors who are homebound. In addition, mail-order drugs are cost-effective for those suffering chronic conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol. Clearly, the Postal Service's value with regard to protecting the health of Americans and the security with which mail drugs are afforded is essential. This brings me to the topic for discussion during this week's NAPS chat, which is a 150-year-old section of postal law that has been highlighted on most national and regional news venues for the past few weeks, the 1873 Comstat Act. To bring you up to speed, during the first week of January, the United States Department of Justice issued a 21-page legal opinion declaring that the federal law permits the mailing through the U.S. Postal Service of medication that could terminate a pregnancy. The Justice Department stated that in its view, the 1873 Comstock Act, which restricts the mailability of certain items and publications deemed to be obscene, does not prohibit the Postal Service from carrying abortion-inducing pills. It is not my intention to discuss the morality of abortion, whether pro-life or pro-choice. Rather, I want to talk about the underlying law which has gained national attention, the 1873 Comstock Act. With me today to discuss this issue is Steve Wormiel, Professor of Practice in Constitutional Law and Government at American University's Washington College of Law. Professor Wormiel is co-author of a biography of Supreme Court Justice William Brennan and past associate director of the Marshall Brennan Constitutional Literacy Project. In addition, Professor Wormiel, for more than a decade, reported on the Supreme Court for the Wall Street Journal, and he was Washington correspondent for the Boston Globe. Welcome to NAPS Chat, Professor Wormiel. Glad to be here, Bob. Thanks for having me. Let me start with this question. Generally speaking... Is it important to know the background surrounding a law? Well, you know, you have to obey a law, whether you know the context or background or not. So in that sense, no. But many laws, and this is certainly one of them, are so tied up in the morality and the history of our values that I think it's really interesting and and, and important to understand it, even if you don't have to. Could you talk a little bit about the background of the Comstock Act? I mean, who was Comstock? Sure. So Anthony Comstock was born in 1844 and in, in Connecticut. He fought in the Civil War and then settled in New York as a, a dry goods salesman 
when he got to New York, he was raised from a very religious, deeply religious family. And when he got to New York, um, he found what he thought was uh, that he was surrounded by vice, prostitution, um, pornography, gambling, all, all kinds of ills. Um, and and uh, he, he was particularly concerned with the morality of sex and, and, and premarital sex. And he believed that contraception, abortion, encouraged immorality and promiscuity. And so he, he moved into a job as a postal worker and eventually as a, as a leading postal inspector and um, founded an organization called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and began to lobby Congress. He went to Washington in 1872 and lobbied Congress for the passage of what became the Comstock Act. This was in the days when, uh, uh, you know, Washington is now very sophisticated at having acronyms for the laws they pass. Uh, this was before those acronyms. So the actual law is called an act in the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. Not exactly something that rolls right off the tongue. No, it isn't. Comstock was an employee of the United States Postal Service, and he was provided the authority of a postal inspector during his postal career. Yes, he became a postal inspector, which gave him the, you know, I don't know that much, to be honest, about the authority today. But in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, he had the authority to enforce this law. He he um, actually identified people that he believed were breaking the law. In some instances, he seems to have actually set them up, you know, by soliciting material through the mails and then going after the people that sent it. Uh, and so he was in a position to recommend the prosecution of, of quite a number of people. And the law did and still has criminal penalties. Was the Postal Service, or how was the Postal Service integral to the implementation of the act? So Comstock's view was that the way to fight this, that you couldn't directly stamp out um, what he believed was immoral activity, but you could reduce the um, availability of it. You could reduce the provocation of it by restricting what was in the mails. And so the law specifically targeted the mailing of information. It wasn't just the goods themselves. It was actually the mailing of information about the goods. You couldn't send information about contraception or abortion, let alone actual contraceptive devices through the mails under the Comstock Act. And so the Postal Service had a direct role uh, in, in finding those materials, identifying who sent them, and referring them for prosecution. How did they enforce the act? How did they make a determination that actually something was in the mail that violated the Comstock Act? Well, I'm sure they didn't find everything, you know, because it would not have been obviously marked or identified, but um, Comstock did go out to... Uh, kind of solicit 
people. That was one way. I mean, he would he would you know send a a letter almost like a sting operation. He'd send a letter to somebody saying, "I'd like to get X through the mails," and then when it arrived, they would go after the person who sent it. That was one way. But one of the other prominent features was going after contraception crusaders. I mean, one of his most famous uh, episodes under the law involved the, the prosecution of Margaret Sanger, who became a, a hero. Now, he wasn't the, the principal mover in that, but what he started led to Margaret Sanger being prosecuted for being a contraception crusader. Uh, and she actually spent 30 days in jail at one point in 1915 or 16. Now, this is this is a 150-year-old law that we're looking at that's still on the books. How has its application and enforcement and its interpretation evolved over the past 150 years? It's been limited in a number of ways. I might have thought that it had been so limited that we wouldn't even be having this conversation, but here we are. So one of the first limitations involved the the contraception crusader Margaret Sanger. After she went to jail, the U.S., uh, I guess the, the New York highest court, the New York State Court of Appeals, issued a ruling in 1918 that said that doctors could send, first of all, it had to be doctors, but said that doctors could send contraception through the mails if it was medically necessary, if it was for medical reasons or disease prevention. That didn't help Margaret Sanger because she wasn't a doctor. And so her conviction stood, but the New York ruling basically eased the the restrictions some so that doctors could start mailing things. There was another important court ruling 20 years later the U.S. Court of Appeals in New York ruled that the customs and postal services couldn't see, intercept and seize uh, contraception that was sent from overseas to a doctor. Um, it had been ordered by a doctor at Margaret Sanger's clinic. And there was a tariff act that had provisions similar to the Comstock Act. And the Court of Appeals said that because doctors had to have access, they should be allowed to order contraception and have it delivered through the mails even overseas. The big steps came much later. The biggest step is in 1965 in a landmark Supreme Court decision called Griswold versus Connecticut. Let me back up one step. The law and and morality that we're talking about here is not just the federal statute. Comstock influenced many states to pass similar laws prohibiting the prescribing of contraception, the performance of abortions. He couldn't have the states, because the Postal Service obviously is federal, he couldn't have the states prohibit the mailing but he got states like Connecticut, Massachusetts to pass laws prohibiting the prescribing of contraception, even to married couples. 
And so in 1965, in a, a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court ruled that married couples had a constitutional right to privacy that included the right to have doctors prescribe contraception for them. And so that knocked down what, what would loosely be called Connecticut's Comstock Law and blunted, I think, a lot of the force of the kind of moral, you know, the legacy of the moral crusade uh, of Anthony Comstock. Even then, there were still some male restrictions. Um, you know, it was not till till 15 years later that the Supreme Court uh, struck down a federal regulation that prohibited the unsolicited mailing of contraception information through the Postal Service. So, so it's, you know, it's been with us for a long time. There is this overlap now between the prescription medication that's being prescribed right now to terminate pregnancies and uh, the contraception, which has been previously litigated. Is there a similarity in terms of privacy concerns between the two types of medications or any of any type of medication sent through the mail? Is there, isn't there, is there an expectation of privacy within the mail that we assume that is now somehow being litigated or being legislated? There is an expectation of privacy, but it's not unlimited. And, and when it involves the mailing of regulated pharmaceuticals, the federal government still has a strong interest in determining what can and can't be sent. Um, and that's sort of where we are now. The, as, as you uh, introduced it, the um, Justice Department had issue, has issued a legal opinion saying that the drugs that can induce abortion, what's called a medical abortion, which is a I understand that about half the abortions that are performed in the country, two drugs, mifepristone and, and misoprostol, and the Justice Department opinion says that those can be sent through the mail. They're FDA-approved drugs they, and, and can be mailed, and that that's basically... Uh, again, it's, it's sort of... I, I think it's bizarre that we're here, but it's reinterpreting the meaning of the Comstock Act 150 years later. As it stands right now, as, as it is on the books, what does the Comstock Act actually prohibit, as, been in, as has been interpreted over the years by court decisions? The current state of the law, I think, is fairly limited, particularly now after this most recent Justice Department opinion, but but the Comstock Act was not just about contraception and abortion. It's still illegal to send obscene material through the mail. That's a, a, a descendant of the Comstock Act. Um, I don't think it gets prosecuted that much because it involves huge amounts of resources, and the government, federal government, devotes its resources more to prosecuting child pornography than it does uh, adult obscenity. But it is, the, the Comstock Act still does prohibit the mailing of obscene materials, uh, as well as, uh, you know, been, has been, having been supplemented over the years to prohibit the mailing of child pornography as well. 
And that's probably its main focal point today, particularly now if the Justice Department is allowing the, the shipping of um, these abortion medications. The, the courts have previously said that you can't prohibit the mailing of contraceptives and you can't prohibit the mailing of information about contraceptives. So we're pretty much down to obscene material as the main focus, I think, today. If the just if under a new administration, the Justice Department, a new Justice Department would revisit the interpretation of the Comstock Act to include the medications and questions that could terminate a pregnancy, it would fall upon the Postal Service to actually, or Postal Police, or Postal Inspection Service, to actually enforce that statute? Yes. And first of all, I think that could absolutely happen. Without getting too political, there's certainly criticism in conservative circles of this Justice Department uh, legal opinion. And so I think a different Justice Department with a different view could reverse this ruling. It's also worth noting, and again, I don't, I agree with you, we're not arguing the merits of abortion, but in the Supreme Court's ruling in June overruling the right to abortion, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a separate concurring opinion saying that the underpinning of the right to abortion is the same underpinning as the right to same-sex marriage, but also as the right to intimate privacy. I mean, he directly criticized the opinion that I mentioned earlier, the landmark Griswold case from 1965. So I don't think the Supreme Court is imminently going to revisit the, the question of whether you have a right to uh, contraception in the home, but, but I don't think it's impossible that at some point the court will take that issue up, and that could roll us back to, to an earlier version of the Comstock Act. What interests me about this issue, I'm going to uh, be honest with you, is it places the Postal Service once again in, a, in the midst of a highly controversial and charged political debate. We had right. the, the mail-in ballots, which is totally different, not on the same, uh, I guess, not in the same latitude as the debate over abortion is. But clearly, if you if we accept the fact that the Postal Service or post law enforcement offices within the Postal Service would enforce the uh, Comstock Act, it would place the Postal Service in the midst of a highly controversial and charged issue. Sure. And I think it, the, the current state of, of the art of, of the Postal Service could kind of cut both ways, right? I mean, I think uh, you know this better than I do. I think on one hand, postal screening capacity is much more sophisticated than ever before the you know the ability to to sort out the dangerous substances in in packages and and other things that the postal service now is capable of doing that it wasn't before maybe gives the the postal service a greater ability to tackle this if it should it have to on the other hand the sophistication 
of you know putting things in packages that are hard to identify and don't make it obvious and easy makes this an exceedingly difficult task. I don't know how the postal service would go about finding that a, a you know a padded folder or a box contains these two abortion drugs if it's there's no mailing label information and, and so on. So I think you're talking about putting the postal service not just in the middle of a political fight, but also a, a kind of pragmatically difficult challenge. Yeah, because right now the postal service is sort of burdened, or not burdened, but as the, the responsibility of sort of assessing mail coming from overseas that could, in fact, contain illicit drugs, for example, fentanyl and other drugs. So this would be added to the list of drugs that would the Postal Service would have to be uh, looking out for, I guess. Right, right. And I don't, I apologize that I don't know enough about the detection mechanisms. I would imagine this is not an easy thing to, to detect. No, it's not. But then I just would add that you're complicated by, and, and I think we'll see lawsuits over this, you know, that there are there are anti-abortion states that don't want these drugs to be available, including through the mails. Now, they can't stop the Postal Service as a matter of, of federal law. The Postal Service statutes would preempt any state law to the contrary, but that doesn't mean that the states aren't going to be trying to figure out ways to to do something about the the shipping of abortion drugs into those states. Mm -hmm. As I understand in the legal opinion, they said they prescribe since these drugs could be used for other types of medical conditions other than pregnancy, um, the prescriber may not necessarily know. Uh, like the, the the pharmaceutical company may not know uh, what the drug has been prescribed for, but the recipient uh, the uh, of the substance does know, and they're the ones who theoretically could be prosecuted under local law rather than the postal service or the lytic area or the actual pharmaceutical company that ships that drug. Exactly, exactly, and and as we know, there are a number of states that are have governors and attorneys general that are fairly aggressive about their intent to try to prevent any performance of abortions, including medical abortions. So I, I think the Justice Department opinion is not the last word on this. I think we'll see litigation, you know, in the, in the days and weeks ahead. In the meantime, and this is my final question for you, could Congress elect to consider legislation to specifically apply the Comstock Act to medications that induce induce the termination of a pregnancy, and that to be the sort of the moving uh, target at this point in time? Uh, that's a tricky question. I mean, um, the first thing I would say is Congress can do whatever it wants, and it doesn't seem to feel any need to be constrained by the Constitution sometimes. Mm -hmm. That said, if Congress were to say the Comstock Act specifically prohibits the mailing of abortion drugs, I think the Supreme Court would have to consider that issue to determine whether that is covered by its Dobbs abortion decision or whether that still raises male privacy issues 
that were not resolved by the overruling of the right to abortion in, in, in Germany. Well, with that being the last word this week, I want to thank Professor Steve Wormiel of the American University Washington School of Law for joining me on Naps Chat. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Bob. And I want to thank Naps Chat listeners for logging on. If you enjoy Naps Chat, please leave a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store, and more importantly, share Naps Chat with your friends and colleagues. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter.